I generally don't read other people's books about menopause, particularly when they're not doctors, because I generally get really annoyed at the misinformation and advice that these so-called experts give. But with today's guest, fitness expert Amanda Thebe, I made an exception, and I am so glad I did. Her best-selling book, Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause and How You Can Too, is funny, it's practical, and it's a medically accurate approach to staying in peak physical shape during the second half of your life. Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Amanda, welcome. I'm going to bring you in here. Hi. Oh my God, that type of, when, when doctors say things like that about my book, it makes me so happy because when I wrote the book, I was so nervous about my staying in my lane. Like yeah. I'm not a doctor. I'm a, I know fitness, I know nutrition, but I'm talking about something that's nothing to do with that, but it also is. And so when I, when doctors support the work I do, I think, oh, I've done something right then. <laughs> Well, I don't say that easily. I think you know me enough to know yeah. that if I say that, I really mean it. And when I read the book, quite frankly, I went into it thinking, oh, here goes another person thinking they know something about this. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is not only helpful, but it's actually medically accurate. So so kudos to you. And I also want to mention that you are in Canada, which makes us international. My oh. international podcast, just saying. Yeah, and we've got all sorts <laughs> of different accents going on as well. So. I do. I love it. I love it. So this is, this is what I want to talk about. You, you cover a lot of ground in your book. You talk about diet. You talk about exercise. You even talk a little bit about hormone therapy. But today, what I'd really like to focus on is our muscles, because vaginas are not the only part of the body that, that changes midlife. And while we know that, you know, women gain an average of five to seven pounds in that first year of menopause, I think a lot of people think that it's all just that they're getting, you know, more fat as opposed to that they're losing muscle mass. That's such an important part of that. And so as a result of all of this, I mean, we take a real hit in terms of body tone, strength, balance, all of that. So that's what I want to talk about today. But what I'd like to do before we get into the, you know, the meat of this is tell us a little bit about your personal journey, because this was, was a personal journey for you. You know, we both have been uh, like sharing our stories for a while and we're both into exercise, right? We're both fit, healthy people. And when I went into my 40s, I was like, hey, look at me. You know, I'm doing all right. I'm a great example for women uh, to see that you can age, you know, age boldly into your 40s. And so I thought I was like nailing it. I thought, oh, look at me. I'm great. (laughs) But uh, then I I think I was about 42 and I got hit with uh, almost like the neurological side of the symptoms of menopause. It was all to do with like the brain fog and numbness in my face and migraines and vertigo, depression. It was no, didn't feel physical. It all just felt like it was, I was losing my mind really. Um, And I had about two years of um, seeing lots of medical specialists with 
zero answers. None of them knew what was wrong and, and would openly say, you know, you clearly don't look well, but we don't know why. Um, eventually, I saw a gynecologist. So I was about 44 at this stage. And he was like, yeah, this is perimenopause. You're not going crazy. I can help you. And I was just a little bit frustrated because I thought, Jesus, I'm like, I've been in the fitness industry by this stage, like 20, 25 years. I feel like I understand the body's physiology quite well. You know, I can hold my own in that arena, but I had no idea what he was talking about. And I just Mm -hmm. felt cheated. And I just felt like, why didn't I know any of this? And clearly that's how a lot of other women feel as well. Well, Absolutely. Not only do a lot of women feel that way, but, but your story is typical in that because it did hit you so much earlier than people expected. That just isn't even on the radar because people think menopause and they think grandma as opposed to, you know, fit, youthful, 40, 42, 44 year old. And of course, while you were on the early side, it was totally normal. Yeah, exactly. And I think that when he said perimenopause, I was like, whoa, like, stop. What are you talking about? And firstly, I'd never heard the word perimenopause. Secondly, when I thought of menopause, I just went straight to, well, I'm early 40s, not late 50s, 60s. That's where I went. And I haven't had hot flashes and my periods are still regular. I just I, I just thought he was wrong. And then obviously I went down the perimenopause rabbit hole and just thought, I have to start talking about this. And really one of the reasons I started doing what I was doing is I just wanted to be like the patient advocate, the patient advocate that's turned around and said, listen, this is what we know. This is the medical consensus. This is what all of the medical societies are saying. These are valid treatment options that you can take. And I sort of liaised with doctors when I wrote that portion, which is why it's medically accurate. And then these are what we know from lifestyle perspectives that are as important. And you need to really focus on those, um, even if it feels like you can't, because we get that, right? We also get that perimenopause can be it can just stop us in our tracks. And so right. I just I just wanted to write something that your best mate would give you and say, here, read this <laughs> and that'll help you. Similar to your so books. You, yeah. You're talking about all these neurologic symptoms you had. When did you start to notice that physically, because as a fit person, you're very body aware. So when did you notice that things just were not the same physically? So... I actually uh, had launched my fitness in-person career in Toronto at that stage. I'd always always had like qualifications and worked with athletes, but I'd never worked with like general population. And I was going and teaching and being with my clients and then going home and just sitting on the sofa for four hours because I was overwhelmed with like depression. And I, I didn't realize it was depression at the time, but I just had nothing left to give. And so because of that, my general fitness declined. I probably put weight on, you know, like everyone else. And and, and I wasn't paying attention to my yeah. food either. Like, because if we're really truly honest with ourselves, when everything else is happening, we don't focus in on stuff like that because it just feels unimportant. Um, and and so I, it never was like one thing where I was like, oh, I don't feel as strong anymore. It really was by the time I got my um, sort of like diagnosis, it was perimenopause and I started taking actionable steps to feel better that I was like, e- Jesus Christ, I'm like, not, I don't feel fit anymore and I don't feel as strong as I did. And I was like, and I think that was just conditioned on the actions or inactions of yeah. things I'd taken. Amanda, can I ask you, were you sleeping at the time? Yeah, my sleep hasn't 
actually ever been yeah. I've never had the vasomotor symptoms really I did get some night sweats yeah. and I've never had sleep issues until I got long COVID and we were talking about this yeah, off air. that's right we both but had COVID yeah we both had COVID and long COVID and I had issues with sleep then but no, I haven't. But that wasn't part of your menopause journey. And, you know, no. and that's, I think that's such a loud, clear message that, that we are always getting out there is everyone's journey is very different. And when we list off these symptoms and a lot of women think, well, could this be perimenopause or menopause? Because my symptoms are not typical and everyone is different. And, um, and I, and I think that's why we need to make people aware aware that there's so many different things that can that can drive this but you know what Lauren I think that sleep is one of the and I have a a community on Facebook sleep is one of the biggest things for women and one of the other things as well is like the you know I get really tired of the message of like the wellness world you know I call it wellness wankery where you've got these people out there saying well I'll be fine because I'm fit and healthy and I just think it's such an ignorant take like if you think because you do yoga every day that you're I going know. to green your way out of menopause. Then I've Listen, welcome to, to my office. I can't <laughs> tell you how many women, because every woman, when they walk in the door, when they're around 40 is when I start having the conversation and say, look, this is coming attractions. I don't know when it's going to hit, but I want you to know what to look for and what kinds of things would mean that it's time to start taking action. And when I start to talk about things like, and you might start to have hot flashes and night sweats and not sleep. And they'll look at me and they go, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm vegan. That's not going to happen to me or I'm thin or I, I'm, you know, fill in the blank. And they don't understand that this is not something that women bring upon themselves because they're not doing the right things. You know, there's a genetic predisposition for the kinds of symptoms that people have. And yes, some people, you know, who are overweight or smoke are more likely to have symptoms than other people, but you can do you everything right and know. still be miserable. Yeah, you never know. But I'd just like to say that you're doing what I wish was like the national norm where that women in their late 30s or early 40s go for their annual checkup and their doctor says, by the way, here's a leaflet, here's some information. You need to be just aware and prepared because we haven't spoken about it before. And I think that if when I was 42, I'd had this information it would have been a completely different ball yeah. game for me because my symptoms ended up ruining my quality of life and my relationships yeah. too. Well, we could spend hours talking about why doctors aren't talking about this, why people aren't getting the information. It's it's a major frustration for, for both of us. And in fact, in my very first podcast, when I talk about, you know, what menopause is and everything, I talk about the fact that our mothers talk to us about puberty and prepare us for that, but they never sit down and talk to us about what to expect with menopause, which would help us a lot. But let's get back to the whole muscle thing, because um I think that is, again, one of those symptoms that people are blindsided with. And the medical term for losing muscle mass is sarcopenia, as you know. And, and you know, when I read the statistic that women lose up to 10% of muscle mass every decade, and when you look at people who are just kind of atrophied as they get older, and and you realize this is why people can't walk up the stairs and can't even sit up, sit down and sit up from a chair without you know, helping themselves. So talk to me a little bit about what your recommendations are for women to maintain muscle mass that they have and then increase muscle mass. So, yeah. So the sarcopenia, as we know, it's between like 
the, the stats are all out there, but anywhere between three and 10% a decade. Um, and it's um, the loss of lean muscle mass. And when you talk about that with women, they'll go, well, I don't have any muscle anyway, or I don't want to get muscular anyway. And it's like, no, everyone has muscle. And what we're trying to say to you is the muscle that you have, we need to preserve because if we don't preserve that, then later on as you age, you're going to have huge implications um, to your overall health. But it doesn't feel like a tangible conversation. And so I know when I wrote the book, I had to put it in terms that women realized that it wasn't just a nicety, it was an imperative thing they have to do. And so sarcopenia happens um, through aging and through being sedentary mostly. Mm -hmm. And even people who may say, for example, do like a run every day or exercise every day, um, but sit down for the other eight hours are more likely to have sarcopenia than someone who's walking around all day. It's the sitting down and being sedentary that's been shown to be one of the biggest markers of it. So that's why I'm like, get up and move around often. Don't literally yeah. sit in your chair all day. And well, then it's, it's a difference between activity and exercise. And, and that's a conversation that I have with people all day as well. Because like you, I have, you know, women who say, hey, I'm going to the gym three times a week and I'm doing my, you know, weights. And it's like, okay, but what are you doing the rest of the time? And I'm not doing this right now, but generally I work at a treadmill desk. And I do oh. that because I actually did it when I wrote my first book years ago. And then when I finished writing, I had so much neck pain and back pain from, you know, being hunched over. And so I read about treadmill desks and I thought, I'm going to get myself one. And um, and it changed my life. It really did because not only did I get rid of the neck pain and the back pain because ergonomically I was, you know, writing in a, in a better position, but it was like, oh my God, at the end of the day with almost no effort, I had walked five miles. And even because, you know, it's really slow when you're writing and working. And, and I thought, I, you know, I'm going to, if I don't work out, it's not so terrible because I've been walking all day. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's uh, in exercise terms, it's called NEAT, the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So it's like the calories that you burn from the non-workouts. And that can be anything. And I think people underestimate walking up and down the stairs, doing the laundry, doing the garden, mm -hmm. and just keep moving. And um, what happens is with sarcopenia is through menopause, aging and then menopause as well it's accelerated right so we're, we we come to a place where we need to actively look at doing things to preserve any muscle we've got potentially build muscle if you don't have enough and also preserve preserve our bones it's the whole musculoskeletal system right well you know and it's so funny because i in my menopause center we have an, um, a bone health center as well and we focus so much on the bones but the truth of the matter is is that um, we also need to focus on the muscles that support those bones and yeah. Fortunately, when you're, when you're working on one, you're generally working on both. Um, the difference, of course, is with bones, we're looking at weight bearing exercise and with muscles, it doesn't necessarily need to be weight bearing. You can swim. You can do so many things that will help with muscles. So, so, really, yeah. and when I look at this, there's kind of two groups of people, if you will. There's the people who, quite frankly, have never been that much in the fitness world, who've never really worked out, who've just kind of, you know, walk their way through life and haven't thought much about it. And now they're hitting midlife and we need to start worrying about loss of muscle math and mass. And then there's people like you who have been fit and who've pretty much paid attention 
and then have to maybe change things. So let's talk about the yeah. first group, the the woman who's never paid any attention at all, and she is now in perimenopause, menopause. What do you tell her to do besides read your book, of course? <laughs> <laughs> read my book. Um, but, you know, that's probably the lion's share of most women. And when right. we talk about exercise, and we know it's like a super small percentage of the population that actively take part in exercise, it's up there with 10 to 15% of people. And so if you've never exercised before and you're in menopause, we, we sort of know of this phenomenon, phenomena where women really start losing confidence and belief in themselves and belief in their athletic ability as well. It sort of, it stops them even trying new things and stops them even starting new things. And so as well as the physical aspect, we sort of need to address the the, you know, the emotional uh, um, component to it. How can I get you starting? What what steps can you take to actually do something? And so this is where things like walking are a really great introduction. I, I'll sort of suggest to people, you know, why don't you, if you've never exercised before and I'm trying to get you to move, why don't you just commit to walking every day, right? Because rather than just like, not doing it mindfully, actually commit to it, write it down, say between the, the, this 30 minutes, I'm going to go out for a brisk walk. Because what I want people to feel is a couple of things is the endorphins. I want them to understand how good it feels to move, the, get the blood pumping and all those nutrients in their body. I, I also want them to understand what commitment is and mm-hmm. building habits. And so usually when somebody starts doing something, they stop because they don't enjoy it or they stop because they get hurt or they stop because they've done the wrong thing. Like how many people do we know that are completely sedentary and then think I'm going to get fit. So start running and get injured. It's usually the worst thing in the world for someone to do. And so I'm all about baby steps, baby steps that you repeat constantly, constantly, Mm -hmm. constantly, because then when your body starts to reap the benefits of that, you'll start feeling curiosity and then what else can I do? And maybe a little bit more confident and thinking, I think I'm capable of doing more. And, and, and it's that, shift physically and mentally that I really try and push to women I also want them to realize that it's okay to feel like that most of us at some stage in our lives will go I don't feel like I'm capable anymore we've all got to take those steps to to improve but I think one of the keys to this success is to making it fun you know I mean one of the things is when we think about exercise we think about oh Yes. Exercise. And so the, the things that I recommend, first of all, is instead of making plans with a friend to go out for lunch, and we all do that, you know, let's have one, let's get together, let's go for lunch. It should be automatic that let's go for a walk together so that you, you know, you can sometimes walk for an hour with a friend and not even realize the hour has gone by because you're so busy catching up. And even better if you have a buddy that you walk on a regular schedule, because when your buddy's standing out there on the sidewalk, you have no choice. You will not let them down. And it's that commitment that is, so it's got to be fun because, and Jim's um, clear atomic habits. It's a really great book. And he says in that they've studied it in depth that You'll only do it if it's something you want to do. You're more likely to stick to it if it's fun. So one of the things that I do to try and get me out there walking is I promise myself I'm going to get to listen to something I actually want to listen to, whether it's music or a podcast or a book on tape, because then it's not just about the walking. 
It's about what I'm doing while I'm walking. I, I am one of those people. I should be able to just like, you know, smell the flowers, but I have to always have something else I'm doing. So let's talk about the person though, who is already fit, yeah. who, um, who, you know, doesn't need to go out for a walk. They're already lifting weights three or four times a week and, and doing all kinds of things. And what's going to change for them, yeah. um, as they go through menopause and, and also, I, do we need to separate separate out changes from aging versus aging, you know, sep- changes from menopause itself? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, like what's the difference? Like what changes yeah. do we need? And so I hope that the people that we talked about to start with, Lauren, the ones that have never exercised and then are now moving every day and have got curious and now going to become the second group, right? The ones that are, are thinking, okay, what more can I do? But During perimenopause, I honestly want women to give themselves a little bit of a break because when you're someone who's committed to exercise because you truly understand the benefits of it and you truly love the way it makes you feel, but then you wake up the next day and you feel like crap because you're fatigued and you've got symptoms and you can't do it, you you feel a sense of failure. And especially if you're sort of quite athletic, it's very frustrating. And so I know many women go through this. And so, um, and we tend to see that more in the like late perimenopause phase. But as women go into postmenopause, especially a few years after, we see that equilibrium come around and women seem to sort of refine themselves and refine that energy. And so I definitely want to say to women, if you're in the phase where you're, you're exhausted, you're fatigued, we know estrogen is part of that conversation, then you need to sort of work with where your body is. Because if you continually push on that envelope, you're going to just exhaust yourself. And, and you're going to be, and you're going to fail. And, and that's why I asked you about sleep earlier, because when I see someone in my menopause clinic and they tell me I'm gaining weight, I'm this, I'm that, you know, I feel miserable. I'm tired. I'm fatigued. You know, the first question of course is how are you sleeping? Because until you fix the sleep, forget exercise, forget eating healthy. It's almost impossible because you're not only exhausted from lack of sleep, but your hunger hormones are off, your leptins, your ghrelins, all of that. So sometimes you do just have to give yourself a break because yeah. if you don't, then you will fail and then it's game over. So, you know, it's, it's, and then you're, permission. and then you're, all, you're also likely lack of sleep as well as the hunger hormones being off. Your cortisol levels are likely to be high. Your insulin response is going to get, everything goes. And so everything try and fix goes. your, try and fix your sleep for sure. And then, when it comes to exercise, I sort of give women like a guide and say, like, when you wake up, or like, I really believe in planning. I really love to plan my exercise and that for my clients. And just say you've committed to working out three to four times a week for 45 minutes each time doing load bearing exercises, strength training. But then on the Monday when you wake up, you can't do it. You have to let that go. You have to be flexible and have some um, ability to, you know, adjust what you're going to do for the day. And so I do the one to 10 scale and I'm like in the one to three area. If you wake up and you're exhausted, you can't get off the sofa, then that day you're going to commit to going out for a walk. Even if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, do some movement because you will feel better rather than doing nothing. Unless you're super Mm -hmm. sick in bed, some movement is going to be better than nothing. 
if you're in the like four to six, seven range, then why don't you try the workout, but just don't push the envelope because in resistance training, we really want women, um, especially through menopause, to sort of reach that um, near failure with their repetitions. You want to you wanna actually have adaptation to the muscle and you can't do that just lifting five pound weights all the time. But maybe that day, if you're only between a four and a five and your energy levels, you want to just go through the motions, maybe do a yoga mm. session, maybe do a really light um, exercise session. And then me. sometimes when you get started, you actually feel better and end up uh, doing more than you expected. Exactly. And so just go with the flow. And then on those eight to 10 energy level days, then seize the day, you know, carpe diem, yeah. go for it. And, um, and know that this will pass and this isn't the way it's always going to be. And that it, it's, it's perfectly okay to support your body's needs as they happen. Do you think it matters whether you exercise in the morning or night or it's just whenever you feel like it, whenever it works in your schedule? Yes, I really think it matters with how you're how you're feeling and your schedule i've tried being that early morning um exerciser and i can't because one i need fuel i really need to eat in the morning I was gonna, and that I, was gonna be my next question is let's talk about fueling your body so that you feel like exercising so you know the there's a lot of information out there that drives me crazy at the moment that's saying like keto is the thing that women should be doing in menopause to lose weight intermittent fasting is required and there isn't any evidence to support that even if you say you're a menopause doctor promoting that because they're out there you've seen them too oh i know that yes <laughs> and so what, but what we know is like when our cortisol response through menopause i'm pretty sure you've spoken about this tons lauren is like mm -hmm. it's a little bit more sensitive and so we need to try and find some sort of equilibrium in the body wherever we can and when you eat it's going to have a positive response on the body. When you wake up in the morning, you've got higher levels of cortisol. If you then go and exercise, that's a stress response. If you then don't eat, that starvation is a stress response. Yeah. And uh, But that's such a critical point because I think we're all in the mindset of, I'm going to exercise and I'm going to burn all these calories and I don't want to ruin it by then eating something when in fact you have to fuel your body in order for it to burn calories efficiently. I mean, that's just the way well, it works. You and exercise without any food. You're exercising like a dirty dish rag. You've got nothing to give. You can't yeah. quite work out hard enough and it's almost like not bothering. That's how most women feel in their energy levels. If it works for you, fine, but it shouldn't be the rule or the general consensus that that's what women need. Yeah. Um, this is a ridiculous question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because one time a fitness expert said to me, you know, one of the biggest problem with midlife women starting to exercise again is that they put on the gym shoes that they wore in, in high school because <laughs> it's been so long since they've exercised. Do shoes matter? Uh, well, you know what? It depends, right? So it depends what you're doing. There are some like purists out there that do weightlifting and Olympic lifting. There's actual special shoes for that. I personally work out at home mainly. And if I can in the gym, I take my shoes off. And this is why, right? So we have so many nerves in the bottom of our feet and it's where our proprioception sort of happens. And that simply just means like how we get to really truly feel how our body activates yeah. the muscles and how it works with body patterns. And so I do 
barefoot work all the time because then I can understand what it means. If I twist my feet this way, if I grip the floor with my toes, I can feel my inner thighs engage. I can feel my lower abdominals engage. And it just, for me, is a more beneficial way to work out. But, you know, there is no right or wrong. Yeah. But you'll always I see thought, I thought I was the only one that exercised barefoot. I'm just, <laughs> I've best. always, when I'm at home, I always exercise barefoot. And that is, I think it comes up, I think I told you that I'm from the ballet world. That's how I exercised in, until recently. And, of course, in the ballet world, you're not wearing gym shoes. You're wearing ballet shoes, soft ballet shoes. And I'm kind of used to feeling the floor. And that's part it, of what I, I think, do. And yeah, I think it really matters. And also when you activate your feet, so your feet aren't passive and relaxed, you're stabilizing all of the ligaments and joints around the ankle. And women in perimenopause always complain of like sore ankles, sore wrists and mm-hmm. elbows, like how are joints sick? And when you actually work the joints in that stable isometric position, you're strengthening them. So it's sort yeah. of like an added benefit there. Well, and, and what I do is um, I actually incorporate it into a lot of things that I do. Like when I brush my teeth, I always rise up to the balls of my feet and I like stand there like that while I brush my teeth um, because I know that it's strengthening my ankles. And I think that part of this whole conversation, what's so important about it is and when we think about having strong muscles and muscle mass. Yeah. I mean, of course, we're thinking about how we feel and how we look and can we still zip our jeans and all that kind of stuff. But I think we really also need to focus on how medically dangerous it is to lose that muscle mass. Because when we look, for example, at osteoporosis, at at loss of bone, and when we look at women who fall down and fracture, why are they falling down? You know, they're falling down because they don't have the strength, because they've lost their balance, because they're not, they don't have the same posture. You know, when we talk about muscles, we're not just talking about the muscles in our legs, but we're also talking about the muscles in our back that's, that make us stand up straight and that make us hold our head up. And so all of these things are going to have a, a major impact on our ability, not just to look good, but to be able to maintain peak medical health. I think we go. Th- from in our 20s and 30s about being how we look to as we go through midlife thinking I just need to support my body and my health I know that I've made that shift and I see it happening I mean there's obviously an element of vanity in there too but our (laughs) our our whole reward system is different and you know as we age we sort of like you said we lose strength power mobility flexibility they're all things that matter and we know the number one issue for um in hospital ERs is falling and what and what happens in our body from a physiological level is our smaller muscles our stability muscles the ones you've just said the ones that support our spine and the ones that support our joints think about how many women get shoulder pain and get knee pain like all of the and and our stability muscles are really crucial for stopping us falling over so it's also important when you exercise to do multi-directional exercises instead of just thinking sitting up and down like that that being one plane of motion think about twisting bending standing up those type of movements are actually more important because they're the type of muscles that lose their strength first. But, you know, it's interesting because you glossed over this really quickly and I want to return to it is the flexibility portion of this because we talk so much about strong muscles, but the other thing that we lose as we age is flexibility and losing that flexibility, not only 
makes you feel stiff and uncomfortable, but again, increases your risk for, for falling. So talk a little bit about how you help women stay flexible. So it's really funny because, you know, we've gone in the fitness world from doing static stretching to doing mobility work back to static stretching, and it keeps changing all the time, but the data is pretty, um, pretty clear. When you start doing your workout, don't start with static exercises. And that's things like, don't start there and just like touch your toes and try and see if you can stretch your hamstrings that way. Do movements, your body, essentially when you start exercising, your body's cold and it's like trying to make a plank of wood be flexible. Instead, what we need to do is we need to mobilize the joints. So just think standing up, squatting down, standing up, squatting down, 10 times and that's working the hip and the knee joint. So mobility is super important at the beginning of any type of exercise program. When the muscles are warmer at the end, then you can do some static stretching. Um, but the benefit what we're seeing, it comes more from the mobility work at the beginning. And so when you're doing any stretches that just say you want your hamstrings to be more flexible so you can touch your toes, you're going to get more benefit from moving up and down through the hamstring and then holding a stretch rather than just holding a stretch. But you can incorporate those quite easily throughout the day. Just pick a couple that you feel like make your body feel good and just practice them. That's why sort of yoga works really because you don't hold the poses long enough and you move through different sequences and your body is doing mobility and stretching at the same time. So, you know, that's sort of why a lot of women like uh, go towards that. I actually don't. I do proper mobility work, but it sort of covers a lot of bases that way. But yeah. actually, I mean, if I could just talk about like strength training, strength training improves flexibility and mobility just by lifting weights. Mm -hmm. Because when you stress your body under load, you're already ticking a whole load of boxes. You're not just getting strong, you're actually improving mobility and flexibility while you're doing that too. And as an aside, there was a study that came out, I think it was about two years ago, that looked at strength training and hot flashes. And, you know, because we look at different kinds of exercise and we know that yoga does not help hot flashes. Sorry, yep. not at all, especially hot yoga. I mean, hello. Um, and but when we look at a lot of different exercises and hot flashes, most of them don't make a difference. But the one that does seem to make a difference is strength, uh, strength training and specifically progressive strength training. It's not just enough to, to lift. You've got to, it doesn't mean you've got to lift hundred pound weights, but I know you know about that study because I think I've heard you talk about it. So can you talk a little bit about that too? There was actually two studies and one was from women through the whole perimenopause transition to postmenopause. And another one that was based here in America by Dr. Roseanne Woods. And she looked at the SWAN research study mm -hmm. and they looked at the difference between like cardio bunnies. And I say that in a very loving where um, and women that did resistance training and yeah. just the number of women that had hot flashes who did resistance training was significantly low it was about 50 percent exactly. low but then in Scandinavia they looked at only pause this study only looked at postmenopausal women who'd never done strength training and they also didn't have any hormone therapy I'm quite sure I'm recalling that right they put one um, half of the group on a progressive program for 12 weeks. And so it was one that had exercises that change regularly and their rest changes, the weights increased, the rest time and all of that, all the adaptations were taken to, into account. They on average reduced their hot flashes from 
14.4 a day down to about six or seven. So they yeah. reduced them really significantly. So, and they sustained it. You know, so often when we and look at these, and yes. that's the important part, because I always tell people, if you tell someone that blue M&Ms is going to you know, decrease your half lashes, it will because of the placebo effect, which is real. And, but that doesn't last. And with the strength training studies, as women continue to do this, they, they did have less hot flashes. So it's really win, win, win. You know, you, you make yourself strong, you burn some calories and you get rid of your hot flashes. I mean, it's some type no of stimulus. It must be some type of stimulus. I mean, when you're strength training, you're literally creating lots of micro tears in the muscle that have to rebuild. And so a lot of work has to happen in the body for the muscles to repair. I mean, it's a normal process. Yeah. And so it just, it has to be something to do that. They don't know why, but I mean, I suppose it's, be, but it does, it does, it works. Yeah. And it's really yeah. interesting because most of the women I know who do strength train don't struggle with vessel motor symptoms. And I haven't apart from after COVID, but they've yeah. also gone yeah. as well. So just for people out there who really aren't all that familiar with strength training, when I think of strength training, I think of some large person lifting 200 pound barbells. Um, that's not strength training. I mean, it is, but that's not what you're talking about, right? So we have these preconceived notions about what strength training is like, maybe like the bro science guys that grunt a lot in the gym. And it's really hard for women to imagine that that's something they need to do. But Essentially, resistance training can start as doing bodyweight exercises, although the body adapts quite quickly and they typically don't end up being that challenging for women. And so you need to introduce some type of a load. And the load might be a dumbbell, a kettlebell, a barbell, can be any of those things. But what it should do is it should be an exercise that challenges your body so that it it feels like it's working hard. And so um, it doesn't have to be lifting a 200 pound deadlift off the floor. Although I can do that. And I'm I not know big, you can. <laughs> and I'm not a big person, but the, no, actually, you're teeny, you're teeny tiny. Building muscles really hard. It's really hard for men. Even you have to be in a, an excessive calorie surplus to make it happen. And you've got to be working out a lot to make it happen. And so there's no way a woman's going to get bigger doing strength training typically you tend to get a bit smaller because it, it sort of takes up a, a, a smaller amount of space than fat like pound for pound but but what it what it does do though is it creates a stimulus that can improve muscle mass bone health even help with depression and anxiety we know that improve all of our overall health markers and and the vasomotor symptoms but if a woman wanted an example of what a strength training exercise would look like, consider like picking up a pair of dumbbells, right? You've got them in your in your hand. Um, how about we say we're going to do a deadlift? And a deadlift sounds like a really complicated exercise, but you're going to take the dumbbells, you're going to have them just resting on the top of your legs. That's all. So you've got your arms down in front of you and they're resting on the top of your legs and you're just going to bend the knees slightly and run the dumbbell all the way down to the floor as it touches your leg, touches your shin. And what happens in that motion is your, your hips go back, your bum goes back and then you stand up again. So just imagine taking that weight down and up 10 times. And so that's a dead exercise, really simple. But I would say to... But all I was just going to end in is, but you need to work hard enough. So if I say you have to do 10 reps and you could do 15, 
well, then you're not working hard enough. You need to lift a heavier set of dumbbells. Well, that was going to be my next question yeah. is when you feel like, okay, I'm not working hard enough, do you increase the reps or do you increase the weights? Well, um, a really great rep range for building and maintaining lean muscle can go anywhere between 8 and 15 reps. But I would typically max out at about 15 reps for most things just because of boredom more than anything else, right? Because you don't want to be doing three sets of 20 or 30 exercises. You'll go mad. Um, and, and typically going up five pounds in a, in a dumbbell is an achievable thing to do, but you might need to take your reps back down to eight and then slowly build up again. It takes time for those changes to happen. Um, but I think women should be um, have a bit more belief in their capabilities because I know they can lift things, but they don't think they can. And we'll no. Typically oh, go go for those little pink five pound dumbbells, and I know they can do more because I see them throwing their grandkids about, lifting heavy shopping bags, you know, putting their suitcase up in the in the airplane and stuff. Like I know that they're capable. It's just it looks different when you're doing okay. it in an exercise setting. Well, I think that's such a big part of it is the preconceived notion of what we can and can't do. So I know that people are listening, not looking, but I want people to go on your Instagram, to go on all of your social media and see how strong you are and how amazing you are and how inspirational you are in terms of what you're doing for fitness. Because if you've done it for yourself, it's just so inspiring that women know that that they can do it. Too. So tell people where to find you, where to get your information, how they can learn more about what you what you're doing. So you can find me on amandathebe.com. Everything's there. You can find my Instagram, Facebook. The book is there too. In the book, there's a 12 week program, and I wrote it so that every level of fitness could do it. And you could also adapt it to that. Like I don't feel like I can do much today. Well, you can do just a small part of it as well. So it's quite a flexible program. Um, and I just sort of want women to say that, like I personally follow all of these women on social media that are way older than me, that are in their late 60s, 70s, 80s, that are still strong and capable women because I need to know that I'm going to be doing that too. Because it's so important to know that you're capable and your body wants that. Your body actually will thrive right. by doing things like that. My my inspiration was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, I who, loved her. I think she was doing push-ups every day until right till the end. Right till the end. I mean, and you she's know amazing in so many ways. But I like to think that her amazing brain and her had something to do with the fact that she was also in peak physical fitness. She wasn't. She had physical. She had um like health challenges all her life, right? Yeah. And she's still committed to that she's because she knew it was helpful. I was due to meet her. Just coincidentally, um, but COVID, like the whole thing, like yeah. all, and then she passed and it was just also devastating, but she's one of my sort of like heroes too. Yeah, I think we, we agree on that one. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing all of this wisdom. And I cannot encourage everyone enough to, to read the book and follow Amanda. That's Thebe, T-H-E-B-E. Um, but that will all be in the program notes as well. And any last thing you want to say before we say goodbye? Yeah, I just think that, like, I think as far as what we are as women and we're talking about menopause, we need to be listening to people like me and Lauren and all the other people on the show who are showing women that it isn't the end. 
because with so many doomsday stories out there, women are sort of being now feeling scared going into it. And, and I think the message has to be, it can be hard, but you don't need to suffer. And there are so many things that you can take control of and you should, you should actively look to do those. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Taking calls, then Francie took me.